Okay, if you uh, have a little, you've got a little handout, very little, just going to have a little introduction, and then we're going to let him, him share, and we'll take a little break and come back for the last part. And so tonight we're going to do session six and session seven and take care of the Abrahamic covenant, okay? Um, now about halfway from Adam to Christ. Now you can go back, you may not have it tonight, but go back and get your timeline. And, and uh, it's divided about halfway between Adam to where Christ comes on the scene. His first advent is about 2,000 years. And so it's, it's not exact, but it's somewhat um, close. Uh, so it's 2,000 years from Adam to Christ, and it's been 2,000 years from Christ uh, to today, plus a little more, 2,023 years. And so, but halfway from Adam to Christ, about 2,000 years, God had been dealing with one race of people. You remember we, we were taught how the, the God's just people started multiplying, and you had was one race of people, one river of people, population of the world, just flowing right along. And so what happened, God chooses uh, a man out of that race to that race of people, one race of people, to bring about a, a chosen people, okay? There had been no division in how one group would approach God compared to another. So everybody had been taught previously from Adam on down that if they were convicted of a sin or a wrong, uh, you know, that's in our conscience. We know right from wrong through our conscience. We I know we had the law uh, that was that you know that points to where that points us to where we're we're off and we're sinners. But we have a conscience that says that tells us that we're wrong. And so all through down to history, down to this point, there'd been no division in how one group would approach God compared to another. When they felt like that they had wronged God, they were instructed to get a sacrifice. Everybody, whoever they were, whatever their lot in life, they had to approach God on the same basis, and that was to recognize a need and to bring an animal sacrifice by faith, and God would accept them. So that goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. God required a, a blood sacrifice. And if you remember, um, uh, Cain brought the first fruit of the, the, the field, his first fruit, first crops, the best crops. He brought those to God. But God was wanting a blood sacrifice. And so um, Abel brought a blood sacrifice. And so out of jealousy, uh, the Bible says that... Uh, Cain slew Abel because Abel's deeds were righteous and his were evil. And so that's, that's been all the way back with Cain and Abel where people are, are jealous or envy over other people. And so uh, because of that jealousy and that envy, uh, Cain slew Abel. But up until 2,000 years prior, after Adam and Eve, people were bringing sacrifices but that kind of wore off after a while. Over time, the human race just simply walked underfoot everything concerning God. So oftentimes, no sacrifice was brought. They just kind of got slack in bringing the sacrifice. And after a while, you could see the, the human race just plummeting more and more and more down uh, in sin. That precipitated first the flood. And so it got to the point to where they turned from, 
from the practice of offering a sacrifice to God when their conscience convicted them that they'd done wrong. They got away from that so far that they every the Bible says every thought, every every thought in man's mind was evil continually. They couldn't think of a good thought. It was always something bad they would even think of. And so you could tell, perhaps uh, imagine what the world was becoming. And because of their, their drifting away from God over the years of time, 2,000 years from Adam down to Abraham, uh, mankind got worse and worse, or to the flood. And so God destroyed the earth by flood. A couple years after the flood, things, you know, uh, Noah was saved and his family, and he told them to go ahead and multiply. And, and so uh, they began... They'd already gone so far down again that they met at the Tower of Babel. Okay, so now they, they have uh, regained uh, in number, but now they're, they've arrived and met with each other, and they want to build this tower that will reach heaven. Under Nimrod, Nimrod, they instituted all the false religions that have plagued the human race ever since. And so it was there at the Tower of Babel where all false religions started. And so God comes down, and you know the story. 200 years after the Tower of Babel, the entire human race expanded. They were all under pagan worship, mythological gods and goddesses. So 200 years after the Tower of Babel, um, the... Human race expanded, and it, it wasn't a, a positive expansion. They were all under pagan worship and mythological gods and goddesses. And you'll say, well, not much can happen in 200 years. You know, 200 years after the Tower of Babel, uh, there again it was, it was total chaos and godless worship. But a lot of things can happen in 200 years. Got to thinking about that, and I went back just uh, about 4 o'clock this afternoon, thought I'd jot down some things, and it amazed me what can happen or what has happened since 1800 to, to the present day. Now, let me share some things with you. You don't have to jot this down, but this just for, this just was just amazing to me, things that have happened in 200 years. And we don't think that not much can happen. I mean, what could go wrong in 200 years? But a lot can happen in 200 years. Listen to some of this. Um, let me see. Let me find out. In 1752, the lightning rod was discovered. 1776, a submarine named the Turtle was uh, invented. 1790, the first patent. And um, 1794, the cotton gin. 1801, a steam-powered pumping station that pumped water uh, from a river to the city of Philadelphia. Imagine how they felt getting having city water, as we would refer to it. Um, 1806, first coffee pot that had a, a metal a sieve that that would take the that would take uh, that would strain the ground. That was in 1806. 1807, a steamboat by Robert Fulton. 1814, a cast iron tip on a wooden plow. Think what a difference that made. 
1817, the Erie Canal, 363 mile long canal. 1818, a woodworking lathe that, uh, that did the work of, uh, of 18 men. Think how, how that improved uh, the work. The reaper, the grain reaper in 1840 to 1844. From 1840 to 1844, there was only 50 sowed. So 50 sowed, this grain reaper sowed, 50 sowed in 1840 to 1844. But in, by 1871, 1,000 per year were sowed. So it caught on. 1833, the first sewing machine. 1836, the first coat revolver. It didn't catch on. And so Samuel Coat went bankrupt six years later. Then the Mexican War broke out. He got a, he got a, a contract with the government and became a very, very wealthy man. 1837, power tools came into existence. 1842, ether, uh, an ether-based um, anesthesia was invented. You ever been put to sleep with ether? Anyone besides me? Oh my goodness, they only done it on me. But I remember I had to have some stitches in my chin and went to Dr. Wilson in Russell and he takes his, he takes his, look like a, a bat cloth, a little larger, and he had the ether on it and he took it and he just waved it over, just went like that over my face and, and I was out like a light. And he'd, he'd done the sewing up and woke me up. And, you know, I, that was ether. That, that, that must have been an amazing thing. 1842 is when that was discovered. 1844, the telegraph. 1845, false teeth, the porcelain type. Think where you would be today if they didn't discover false teeth. Not that you have them, but, you know, we as a society would be. <laughs> Hey, listen, they were mounted with steel springs. Think of that. Put your teeth in and have to tighten the springs to keep them in. 1846, the printing press. Isn't that interesting? All of this, less than 100 years. Then 1857, a passenger elevator went 300 feet. 1858, a burglar alarm. 1859, the oil well. 1860, Henry repeating rifle. 1862, armored ships. 1864, an oil pipeline. 1867, Bob wire. 1873, a typewriter. 1874, a steel bridge. Um, a telephone in 1876. A phonograph in 1877. A light bulb, a hearing aid, electric fan. A roller coaster at Coney Island in 1894, skyscraper in 1885, a gasoline-powered car, 1892, a zipper. Think of that, guys, a zipper. Didn't come about to 1893. 1901, a double-edged blade to shave with. Imagine that invention. 1962, a computer. That was just like, what? Seven years before I graduate. 1903, an airplane. 1908, the Model T. 1926, a rocket. 1957, the polio vaccine. Y'all remember some of you older ones? Remember taking that polio vaccine? What was that called? Uh, the little sugar cube? Hmm? 
Remember? You don't remember. Am I the only one that took the sugar? <laughs> oh, we, we got some. <laughs> they don't know what they took. They, I remember we had to go, we went to Rockwood School and the people were lined up to take, the, take that uh, little sugar, salt, salt. S, um, how do you spell his name? Anyway, he came up with this polio vaccine. And so we went down there to take that. We stand in line and there's an old oak tree there in front of Rockwood School and everybody's lined up, you know, and, and they'd hand out that vaccine. And, and, uh, but that's the same place the dogs got vaccinated at Rockwood too. So, uh, so we, we went down there for that vaccine. But polio was a, I mean, it was a very common thing until that came out. Uh, you had uh, 1969, the moon landing. That's not been that far long back. 1974, the, uh, 74, the barcode, where you scan your food now. A lady that was my secretary, or office lady at TGNY in Old Hickory, Tennessee, her son was an engineer and developed that barcode. Sure did. And he just got paid what a regular engineer would be paid you know, so much in a month or whatever his salary was back in 1974 and just think how much that company made that, uh, that processed all that. 1953, the heart-lung machine, you know, when you have a heart transplant and they put you on the heart-lung. That was developed in 1953. And so point being, 200 years after the Tower of Babel, the human race expanded and they were all under this pagan worship, mythological gods and goddesses. And you didn't think much would have happened, but a lot can happen in 200 years. And I just jotted down just a, a little that's happened in the past 200 years. So out of that population of idolatry, God puts his finger on one man, one of millions, Abraham. And out of the land of Ur of the Chaldees, which is the lower end of the Euphrates River, the same Iraq that we hear about in the news today, God called Abraham. And so we have the call of Abraham. Okay? Now we want to see this, this video. So listen close, and then we'll take a little break after this one. have come about. All right, and this is down in Ur of the Chaldees, which is at the lower end of the Euphrates River, the same Iraq that's in the news every day. And a few miles south of present-day Baghdad was the ancient city of Babylon. And it's going to be interesting to see because, you know, I've, I'll have to admit, sometimes I have to change my thinking. I've always been of the mindset that ancient Babylon would never be rebuilt. But I'm beginning to restudy that, and uh, I'm now kind of on the fence, and maybe it will be. Maybe that's why our president was so determined to go into Iraq, because it had to be stabilized. It had to be brought that if indeed ancient Babylon is going to be the capital of the Antichrist for the tribulation, then the stage has to be set 
for the city to be totally rebuilt. Now, I was reading an interesting book the other night. There's been a new city built on the deserts out in the Arab Emirates, a whole new modern city with all the infrastructure and everything, the hotels, you name it, and they build it in less than two years' time. So this writer was making the same claim, that when we talk about rebuilding Babylon, that doesn't mean that the tribulation is 30, 40 years into the future. They can build a new city today in less than probably, he said, less than a year. But whatever. That's all going to take place in where we are presently involved, Iraq and ancient Babylon, right down there on the Euphrates River. All right, it's from that same area then that everything began so far as the nation of Israel is concerned, the call of Abram. All right, and we'll pick it up in chapter 11, verse 31. <clears throat> chapter 11 of Genesis, verse 31. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. Now there's the family. Old Terah the patriarch, and then his sons, including Abram and his wife, Sarai, who was a uh, half-sister, all right? And they went forth from Ur of the Chaldees. Now, Chaldea, of course, was ancient Babylon. To go into the land of Canaan, which is up there on the shores of the Mediterranean. And they came to Haran, which was up in the upper reaches of the Euphrates River. Now, you've seen enough of Iraq lately. You know that the Euphrates River comes out of eastern Turkey, makes a big swoop all the way down to the Persian Gulf. And just short of the Persian Gulf was the ancient city of Babel or Babylon. All right, so they came all the way up the Euphrates Valley up to about the little ways east of the Turkish border, and that's where they stopped. That's Haran in biblical history on the Euphrates River, straight north of Jerusalem, but yet up in present-day Syria. All right, now verse 32. And the days of Terah, the father of Abram, were 205 years, and he died in Haran. In other words, old Terah did not accompany Abram and his family down into Canaan. And I've always taught it this way. Terah was an idolater, and God could not deal even with Abram until he was totally bereft of that idolatrous, influencing father. So God waits until Terah dies, and then he moves them down into the promised land. All right, now we pick up the covenant then in Genesis chapter 12. And again, I guess I should go to the board and re remind all of you that after the Edenic covenant has come to an end with the Garden of Eden and all of its innocence and beauty has gone by the board, all of these covenants now then have been functioning right up until the demise of Israel after they crucified the Christ, and we are now in this age that has left Israel dispersed and so forth, and waiting for the stage to be set for the coming of the new covenant. So all of these covenants after this one in Abraham were between God and Israel up until God 
put the finger on the Apostle Paul to go to the Gentile world. Now, I know a lot of people can't comprehend that. But from Abraham until Paul, God only dealt, with some exceptions, with the nation of Israel. Never were the Jews told to go out and evangelize the Gentiles. It was God dealing with his covenant people and no one else, with some exceptions. And God is sovereign. He can make exceptions. Uh, Rahab, on the walls of Jericho, she was a pagan Gentile, but she came in by faith to the promises of Israel, ended up in the genealogy of Christ. Ruth, the Moabitess, was a Gentile. She was not of the stock of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But she too, by faith, came in with her mother-in-law, Naomi, became a citizen of Israel. So you have these exceptions. But other than that, God only dealt with his covenant people, Israel. Now I always have to use a, letter, uh, a verse from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Come back with me, honey. Keep your hand in Genesis. We'll be right back. But I always have to qualify my statements with Scripture that God did not deal with the Gentile world so far as salvation is concerned. Oh, he dealt with them in his wrath. They came under his discipline. And if a nation stabbed Israel in the back, it wasn't too long until God sent them into the dustbin of history. But so far as offering salvation to a Gentile, no way. It was only to his covenant people, Israel. Ephesians chapter 2 11 and 12, verses that we use periodically to prove my point. Verse 11, wherefore, Paul writes, remember, bring it to mind that you, now Ephesians were Gentiles, they were living there on the western end of Turkey, in the city of Ephesus, that you being in times past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the circumcision made with hands in the flesh, that is, Israel. Now verse 12, that at that time, well now I always have to stop and ask, during what time? While well, God is dealing with the covenant promises in Israel, all during from Abraham until we get to the Apostle Paul, God is only dealing with his covenant people. And here it is, that at that time, you Gentiles were without Christ, aliens. Now watch the language. Aliens, non-citizens of the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise. Now, aren't you glad you know what the covenants are? Gentiles had no part in the Abrahamic. They had no part in the Mosaic or the Palestinian or the Davidic, or will they necessarily in the new? This is all God dealing with Israel. <clears throat> okay? You were strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and that left them where? Without God in this world. The Gentile had no hope of salvation. And I always point out, don't blame God. They had 2,000 years, and they walked it all underfoot. What was to make them any different now? They wouldn't have been. So God wasn't being unfair, but he's going to set the stage 
for when he can send salvation to the Gentiles, and that's going to have to be through the nation of Israel, through the call of Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. All right, come back now then to Genesis 12, and we're going to take our time on this Abrahamic covenant. I've just decided in the last 30 seconds, if I don't finish it in these two programs, we'll just put it into the next two. We're going to exhaust this Abrahamic covenant. Ray, that should make you feel good, shouldn't it? Ray's been waiting for this for uh, two, three years. Every once in a while, he'll come up and say, when are you going to give us something on that Abrahamic covenant? Nobody knows anything about it. Well, I'll agree, but here it is now. We're going to take our time. Now the Lord had said, verse 1, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, from your family, and from your father's house, Terah. Get out from under Terah's idolatrous influence and go to a land that I will show thee. Now he doesn't tell him what it is, but he just says that he'll get him there one way or another. Now here come the covenant promises, seven of them. Count them if you want. I will make of you a great nation. That's number one of the covenant promises. Number two, I will bless you. Number three, I'll make your name great. Now you know that carries all the way up to our present time. I've even got a grandson that they called Abraham. And you know a lot of people throughout your friendships who are called Abraham. It's still a popular name, all right? And thou shalt be a blessing. Here's the next one. I will bless them that bless thee. And God has never backed off of that one. You bless the Jew, and God will bless you. It's a promise. This has never been rescinded. And then verse 3, reading on, On the other hand, I will curse, or I will bring bad things to those who bring bad things to the Jew. I will curse them that curse thee, and I will bring it about to those who are against the Jew or the nation of Israel. And then here's the seventh one, <coughs> the all-encompassing <coughs> promise made to Abraham. And this carries all the way up through you and I, that in thee, in Abram, would all the families of the earth be blessed. Now he's going beyond the borders and the genealogy of Israel. It's going to carry to the whole human race. Now that's the crowning part of the Abrahamic covenant, and it's that part of the covenant that brings us into the picture that through this man Abraham will come the nation that God will pull apart from all the rest of humanity and he's going to deal with them on covenant basis like we've been seeing now for the last several programs with the idea that he's going to prepare the nation for the coming of a Redeemer and a Savior of all mankind. And he's going to have to come through the nation of Israel. It could be no other way. All right, now, in order for Christ to come in his first advent, a lot of things had to happen. You had to have the nation of Israel in the area of Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. That's all in God's blueprint. So in order for ha to have Israel in the area of Jerusalem, he has to bring them into a homeland that will include Jerusalem, 
and he's going to have to establish the nation under some sort of a government that will hold them together until all this is fulfilled. And it was all in his divine purposes, as Paul could, puts it. All right, so now then, that's the Abrahamic covenant, those seven statements. Whenever you refer to the covenant, this is what you have to look at. And whenever we refer to Christ having come through the nation of Israel, it began right back here in this covenant promise. All right, now, to bring it further and further along, let's just chase it down through the Old Testament. Turn over to chapter 13. <clears throat> Starting at verse 14. And now he has Abram down in the land of Canaan. The Canaanites are still occupying the land. And remember that Israel is marked with mountains. Those of you that were with us a few weeks ago, I think you were probably surprised how mountainous the country is. The city of Jerusalem is just simply built on the mountains. You go north from Jerusalem, it's mountainous. And we call them the mountains of Israel. All right, now I think in one of those high points on one of those mountains of Israel, verse 14, the Lord said unto Abram, After Lot was separated, lift up now thine eyes, look from the place where thou art, northward up toward Lebanon, southward down toward the Red Sea, eastward out over the Jordan Valley and out into what is present-day Jordan, and westward, which of course would end at the Mediterranean Sea. Look all four directions. Verse 15, for all the land which thou seest. Hey, listen, the Middle East is still relatively compact. You can easily look from a high point in Israel, clear across half of Jordan. You can look halfway down to the Red Sea. You can look clear up past Mount Hermon. So Abraham took in a lot of square miles in just one view. And now look what it says. All the land that you see, to thee I will give it. And to thy seed forever. And of course, remember when it says forever, I'm going to take you right on into the new heavens and the new earth of eternity. Now then, verse 16. I will make thy seed or your offspring, the generations to come, as the dust of the earth. Now, I don't think it's so much numbering the grains of dust as it is the symbolic picture that Abraham is going to be associated with an earthly people. Now, you remember, as long as I've been teaching this on television, I'm always designating Israel as God's earthly people. All of their promises were earthly. Never did God make spiritual heavenly promises to Israel. It's all earthly. And that's why even in their Old Testament economy, if they were obedient, hey, they got wealthy. They were blessed. If they were disobedient, they may lose it. Now, see, we don't have promises like that today. God doesn't tell us if you're an obedient Christian, I will bless you with wealth. That does not happen. I don't care what anybody says. If you're wealthy today, it's by His grace, not by promise. And so when we get into Paul's epistles, now it's not the earthly people we're associated with, but what? The heavenly. All our promises as a believer today are heavenly. We're just strangers here on this planet. We're citizens of heaven because 
we are heavenly connected promises. Israel are earthly. All right, now then, let's just skip over to chapter 15, I think I want to go. <clears throat> now, chapter 15, verse 5. Now, we got another direction that Abraham is looking. Genesis 15, verse 5. And a gun of God is still dealing with him on those mountains of Israel. And he brought him forth. You all with me? Genesis 15, verse 5. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and count or tell not the dust of the earth, but what? The stars. Now are you seeing the picture? He looked at the dust, that's earthly. But he looked at the stars and that's what? Heavenly. So Abraham has a connection not only to the earthly people of Israel, but also to you and I of the church age. And that's where some people have totally twisted the concept into telling you that when you become a believer, you become a Jew. No, that's not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture merely teaches that we have become recipients of this glorious gospel because of the covenant God made with Abraham. Now, here's the main point. When God made that covenant with Abraham, was it after circumcision or before? God when he brought about this glorious plan of salvation. But let's go back now to the early promises in this Abrahamic covenant that's making everything possible that you and I enjoy today. And let's go back to chapter 15. We left off where he looked at the stars. And so, verse 5, Genesis 15, again verse 5, He brought him forth and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if thou be able to number or count them. And God said to Abram, So shall thy seed be, which I feel is the spiritual seed, which would involve, I think, you and I as members of the body of Christ who are heavenly connected. All right, now then you come on down to the next verse and we see the humanness of this great patriarch Abram, or Abraham as he becomes known later how he was just as human as we are. Now, after God had made all these promises, then what does Abraham say? Well, prove it. Show me. See? All right. Verse 7. Well, let's read verse 6. So Abram believed in the Lord. That's all. He doesn't do anything else. He doesn't practice circumcision yet. He has no law to keep. He doesn't offer sacrifices. He just simply believed what God said. Now let's show you how Paul puts that. Maybe I should back everything up with Scripture. Jump all the way up to Romans. <coughs> Romans <coughs> chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And we'll just start at verse 1. Because when I keep mentioning that Abraham has a connection with us who are saved by faith plus nothing... I've got to let the Scripture speak for itself. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. 
Okay, all got it? Paul writes to us Gentiles, what shall we say then that Abraham our father, now remember Paul was a Jew, <coughs> that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh, in other words, in his genetical background, what has Abraham found? For if Abraham were justified or saved by works, he has whereof to glory or brag, look what I've done to attain salvation. But he could never brag like that to God. Now verse 3, For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God. That's all. Abraham believed God. Believed what he said. And what did God do? Called him righteous. That's all. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Now that's simple, isn't it? That's too simple for mankind to comprehend. But that's the truth of the word. All right, so now then come back to where this was first referred to in Genesis 15. So Abraham believed God, verse 6, and God in turn calls him righteous. Not because he was sinless. He's going to fail. He's going to trip up now and then. But God imputed righteousness to him in spite of it, see? All right, now then, verse 7. God says, I am the Lord that brought thee out of the earth of the Chaldees to give you this land, that is the land of Canaan, where he's standing, like I like to think, on one of the mountains of Israel. And he says, I'm going to give you this land to inherit it. Now here's Abraham's humanity. And he said, Lord God, whereby can I know that I will inherit it? Where's the proof? And what does God do? Okay, Abraham, we'll go through the secular system of transferring real estate. We'll just do like your neighbors do. And remember that all of paganism rested on animal sacrifices. That's where they adulterated the right thing, remember. And so they open up these animals, lay the carcasses with a space down between them. All right, now you pick it up uh, in verse 10. He divided them in the midst, laid each piece against the other, and the birds of sacrifice he didn't divide. He just laid the sacrificed birds there with that walkway down between them. And now then, verse 12, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. In other words, I always call this the first instance of real anesthesia. God put him under where he couldn't say a word or know anything. And he says to him, Know of a surety that thy seed, your offspring, shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. Now this is prophecy. I usually refer to this verse as the first true prophecy in Scripture. It's a future event that God promises to the nation of Israel. That's prophecy. Even today, prophecy only really involves the nation of Israel. As we see the world <clears throat> getting ready for the end time, all that's taking place, whether it's Iran or whether it's North Korea and all that, it's still all circling around the nation of Israel. They are at the core of everything. And so all of prophecy, even as we see it today, 
is based on what God has promised His covenant people, Israel. And here is the first one in Scripture. That's a true prophecy. He said, Know of a surety that your offspring, these children that will be coming down the pipe, shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them. Well, that, of course, is the Egyptian bondage, which wouldn't take place for another two, three hundred years. But God prophesied it. And they'll be afflicted the 400 years. Now 14, and also that nation, Egypt, whom they shall serve, I will judge, he will punish. And afterward, that is after the plagues of Egypt, they, the children of Abraham, shall come out with great substance. And we know they did. They spoiled the Egyptians. And then verse 15, the promise is, you'll go to your fathers in peace. He's going to die in a great old age. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. Now then, verse 16, but in the fourth generation, they, his offspring, will come here to the mountains of Israel again. After a sojourn in Egypt, they're going to come back to the land of Canaan. But it has to wait 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites, the Canaanites, was not yet full. God could not punish them with taking them out of their land that they had now worked for and had made prosperous and productive until their behavior demanded it. And if you want to know what their behavior was, you read Leviticus 18. And it was horrible. All the immorality that the mankind can think of, the Canaanites practiced promiscuously. And consequently, God was able to take their land away from them and give it over to the promised covenant people. All right, now then, verse 18. In the same day, the Lord, Jehovah, God the Son in His Old Testament personality, made another covenant with Abram. See? On top of the one that he has in Genesis 12, now we come to an additional part, or addendum we may call it, with Abraham, and he says unto him, Unto thy seed, unto your coming generations, I have, past tense, given this land. It's a done deal, Abraham, but I'll just go a little bit further and secure it in your own mind, that I have given this land from the river of Egypt, whether it was the Nile or whether it was another river that has since disappeared, it doesn't make that much difference. But from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates and all those tribes that were involved in that <laughs> geographical area would have their land taken from them and given over to God's covenant people, Israel. All right, now then we're going to jump all the way up <clears throat> to chapter 20. Oh, let's see, 24, I think I want. Twenty-six, I'm sorry. Genesis chapter 26. Verse 1. Genesis 26, verse 1. Now we're already up to Isaac. And we're going to <clears throat> pass this covenant promise that was given to Abram. It's going to pass on to Isaac. From Isaac, it's going to pass on to Jacob. All right? Verse 1, there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went unto Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, under the Gerar, and the Lord. Again, that's the same God the Son, the coming Messiah of Israel. 
the Lord appeared unto him. Now that word appeared in the Greek is what we use the word, uh, got to think for a moment, up, up to my, I think it is. And it means a visual eye-to-eye -eye contact. Not just invasion, but he evidently appeared eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball with Isaac. And he appeared unto him and he said, face to face, go not down into Egypt. <clears throat> now you have to remember, and I'm always stressing history in my teaching, that back in antiquity, Egypt was to the then known world what America is today. And what are we? We're the consumer nation. We are only 6% of the world's population, what we consume 90-some percent of the world's goods and raw materials. And of course, that's why the world hates us. But that was Egypt in antiquity. All of the caravan routes from the Far East and the Middle East and from the civilized area of Europe all wound their way down to Egypt because Egypt was the kingpin of the civilizations at this time. So the temptation was that if you didn't have much going for you in the mountains of Canaan, to go down to Egypt. <coughs> but God warns Isaac, don't you go down to Egypt. Now again, symbolically, Egypt in Scripture is a picture of the world. And so this is where we get the whole idea that we are not to be enticed by the world. Well, there stood Egypt, see, with all of its glitter and, and all, of its, uh, all of its pleasure and all of its abundance of goods and services. But God tells His pastoral people living there in the mountains of Israel, don't go down to Egypt. All right, now verse 3. Sojourn or spend your time in this land, the land of Canaan, and I will be with thee, and I will bless thee. Ringing a bell? For unto thee and unto thy seed, I, God says, will give these countries. They haven't got it yet, but they're going to get them in time. And I will perform the oath or the covenant which I swear unto your father Abraham. See how plain all this is? Now verse 4. Right along with what he told Abraham, he repeats to Isaac, I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries. And in thy seed, here comes the promise again of an overall redeemer for the whole human race. And in thy seed, the nation of Israel, Israel's Messiah, Israel's son, Jesus of Nazareth, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. See how plain that is? But until he can bless the nations of the world, he's going to deal with his covenant people, Israel. And that's how it's all going to come about. All right, verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my command, my statutes, and my laws. All right, so now then we come all the way up through these Old Testament scriptures, and it's a constant referral to the promises that he made to Abraham. In fact, in the few moments we have left, I think I'll go ahead and just jump ahead to the New Testament promises that are resting on the Abrahamic covenant, and then we'll go back in our next program and pick up some more of those promises back in the Old Testament. But come up with me for now.
to Luke chapter 1. Yeah, I was going to stop Matthew for a minute. I don't think I'll take time today. Let's go right on into Luke chapter 1, which we've referred to many times, but repetition is the mother of learning, remember. And I never apologize for repeating some of these things that are so basic to our understanding. And we looked at this in one of the previous programs this afternoon on the New Covenant, how it referred to, no, I was in the Davidic Covenant, referred to David in this one. But here I want you to see how all that Zacharias is foretelling is resting on the promises that God made with their father Abraham. Okay, verse 67. The father of John the Baptist, here in Luke chapter 1, who has just now received back his ability to speak, is going to make some fantastic statements concerning God's covenant people Israel. All right, verse 67. John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he spoke forth, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Now that's because they are a covenant people, and God cannot deal outside of his covenant promises. And he hath visited and redeemed his people. Now there's only one Redeemer. And that will be God the Son, Jesus of Nazareth. And that's what John the Baptist is being prepared to announce. See, everything is falling in place. Now then, Zacharias in verse 68 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath redeemed his people, and now verse 69, and hath raised up a horn of salvation. I remember I've taught over and over through the years that all through the Old Testament we have two lines of thought, just like parallel railroad tracks. Remember seeing it on the board? I always put on the top line, the promise of a coming king and a kingdom. The second parallel line is the promise of a suffering Savior. <coughs> now they had to have both. You could not have the ruling and reigning king without first having the suffering Savior. Because the new covenant, as we saw early this afternoon, the new covenant could not become a reality until the sacrifice for sin had been made, which was the person of God the Son, who had to die the, the death of the cross. All right, so redemption now is going to be totally resting on the suffering Savior. But after he's accomplished the suffering, then he could come and be the ruling king. But nowhere in the Old Testament do you have an indication that there will be a 2,000-year hiatus. And that's why some of these Bible teachers scorn at the fact, show me where there's a parenthetical period of time in the promises. Well, while I was getting ready for this, I came across one that's as plain as the nose on our face, and I don't know how they miss it, but they do. And I don't think i got time to show it to us today, but I will in our next taping. I'll let you look for it yourself. Where it's just as plain as day that there's going to be a period of time between the tabernacle of David falling down, which of course is when the temple was destroyed and Israel was taken out of the land in 70 A.D., until the tabernacle of David will be 
rebuilt and restored. And in that interval, God is going to be calling out a group of Gentiles for his name. Now, I'll let you find it where it is in Scripture, but there it is. That after the tabernacle has fallen down, I will call out a people for my name, and then the tabernacle of David shall be restored. A parenthetical period of time. Now, it doesn't designate how long, but there it is. And there's a couple others, and I don't remember just right now where they were. I've just seen them in the last few days. And then they scorn and they ridicule. How can you even imagine that there was ever anything mentioned about a parenthetical period of time between the rejection of Christ and His second coming? Well, I'll let you look for them as well. Prove these people wrong. That's what makes Bible study interesting. All right, reading on in Luke 1. <coughs> Repeating verse 69, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, not in the Gentile world, only in the house of David, which is in that lineage of the twelve tribes of Israel. <clears throat> verse 70, As He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets all the way back, you might say to Genesis, who have been since the ages began. Now here's the promise that we, the nation of Israel, should be saved from our enemies. Now stop and think. All the way up through Israel's history, how many enemies have they had? Few or many? Many. Their whole world around them has hated them from day one. Not because they're deserving of hate because of what they say and do. It's because they're God's chosen people. And Satan... Know that I've stressed that on this program over and over. The reason the Jew has suffered inexorably since the very beginning is because Satan knows that if he can destroy the nation of Israel, he destroys every promise in this book. If he can keep the nation of Israel from being a, a real entity in the Middle East today, then prophecy can't be fulfilled. It just cannot happen. And Satan knows that. And so he's been making life miserable for him. He's tried over and over to obliterate him from the human experience, beginning with the book of Esther. And then again, in the Roman invasion in 70 A.D., the <coughs> Romans would have loved to just literally annihilate every Jew. And now we're seeing it today. The Arab world will not rest until every Jew is gone. But it's not going to happen because God has promised it. But this is why don't blame the Arabs. Don't blame the Muslims. Blame the source, the devil. And he knows that if he can destroy Israel, he can destroy the promises of this book. All right, reading on. That we should be saved from our enemies, verse 71. And from the hand of all that hate us, all their Arab natives, neighbors are one day going to be dealt with. Now verse 72. And what's the end result? to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. Now, you remember all the promises we've been looking at today? That no matter how much Israel sins, God will never withdraw His covenant promises. No matter how many times they break His covenants, He will not break it with them because His mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. Here it is again. Zacharias, through the unction of the Holy Spirit, repeats it and that we're going to have the mercy promised to our fathers. Now here's the part I came in for. And to remember His holy covenant. 
What covenant? The oath or the covenant which he sware to our father Abraham. See how plain all this is? God is never going to give up on his covenant promises. All right, now then reading on verse 74. Based on those covenant promises, God can tell the nation of Israel through the priest Zacharias that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. That's Israel's future. When their Messiah will yet be their king and they're going to have the new covenant become a reality, they won't have to work at living a spiritual life. It's going to be automatic. They won't have to sit down and study the Old Testament or anything else. It's going to be automatic. And God will just simply control their lives and their, their existence, and it will be joy like no one can understand. <coughs> All right. Verse 75, in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. It's going to be without end. Now those are promises, you see, that the nation of Israel can rest on. But if Israel can rest on them, then we know that God will be just as sure in His promises to us. Now, I only have a minute left. I hardly know where to go to spend that minute. But let's just go briefly to Romans chapter 11. And uh, this will be something that we can be thinking about for the next month until we come back for our next taping. <clears throat> Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Verse 11. Okay. Iris, remind me, book 64. This is book 64, and if we'll go right on into the next four programs, it'll all be in book 64. All right, you got your scripture? Romans 11, verse 11. Now, they see a Paul, Apostle Paul explaining how salvation came to us as Gentiles. Without the covenants, this is by the grace of God. I say then, Paul says, have they, the nation of Israel, have they stumbled that they should fall and be gone and off the scene like they try to tell us? God forbid, he says in another place. Oh, he does right here. God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentile. Well, what's Paul talking about? When did Israel fall? When they rejected the Messiah when they cried out for his crucifixion, and when they screamed, we'll not have this Jesus of Nazareth to rule over us. That's when they fell. But what did they bring about? The work of the cross, our glorious salvation. Thank you for watching Through the Bible with Les Feldick. Through the Bible is a partner-supported ministry if this program has been a help to your study of the scriptures and you so just uh, is Israel going to lose their homeland? No, it's theirs. It's dated to them. Uh, that symbolic ceremony that went through with the bullocks and the dove, that was a ceremony that, that was custom in that day as a dated property. And, 
And so the land was deeded to them by God, and they'll always have that land as, as described uh, in the Bible. And, uh, but they rejected the Messiah, and when they rejected Messiah, he turned to the Gentiles, he turned to us, he offered salvation to us. And so, uh, and still offered to the, to the Jew today, but uh, of course they still, they still reject him as the Messiah, and they're still waiting for the coming Messiah. And so because of that, we're in that period of time, that parenthetical period of time, uh, that God kept to himself the, the, uh, the building of the church, the bride of Christ. And when the last Gentile is brought into the bride of Christ, to the church, well then that's, uh, that's when he'll come for his church. And so uh, anyway, it's, uh, we won't be meeting next Sunday night. We'll have Bible school, but we uh, hopefully will come together the week after. And I don't know if we'll leave the... Uh, the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, I want to. I want us to to look um, before too long about the kingdom. From time to time, you'll come across the word kingdom in the Bible, and you it'll be it'll be spoken of as an earthly kingdom, and then it's spoken of as a heavenly kingdom. And so, what is the kingdom of God? We want to look at that because God is coming. Christ is coming to establish His kingdom on earth. So what does that mean? Uh, what, what, are we refer, what are we referring to when we speak of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of earth? What's the difference between all that? So we want to look at that a little later on as we study and look at the kingdom of God. What does that entail? What all does that entail?